podcast is brought to you by the Creation Academy, an apologetics learning experience designed to teach, train, and inspire others to become strong defenders of the creation account presented in the Bible. Primarily, the Academy offers video and audio courses with downloadable PDF workbooks taught by a team of experienced creation researchers. But members of our exclusive Creation All Access program will also have access to expert interviews and Q&A sessions with creation scientists and apologists, all inside a private Facebook group where you'll fellowship and interact with a like-minded community of believers. We're excited to announce that enrollment is now open. The Academy does not officially launch until March 2019, but until then, you can get into Creation All Access for just $7 per month while we're adding new course material. Join today by going to www.creationcourses.com and clicking on Enroll Now. All right, thank you for joining us this week. You're listening again to the Steve Schramm Show. We're training up confident and passionate servants of Jesus so they can grow in their walk with God and then share their faith more persuasively. That's the kind of thing we talk about here. We come to you usually once a week and give you a little something on our hearts, on our minds here to be able to uh, grow in you this passion for a more logical, a more rational kind of faith the kind of faith that's interested in learning deeply about who God is and about why knowing God matters and then taking that message to a lost world. So thank you for making the choice to join us this week and allowing us to spend just a little bit of time with you, helping you to do that. Well, what we want to do this week is dive right in to part two of the little mini-series we started last week. I thought that I would be able to get everything in last week, and as is usually the case, I waxed a little eloquent and thought it would be a good opportunity to wrap it up where we did and let me come back and finish it up this week. So that's exactly what we're going to do. Last week, what we began talking about was polemical theology. Polemical theology. Now, um, in this particular case, if you have not yet listened to last week's episode, so perhaps this is actually the first week ever uh, that you've joined us or something like that, then I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's lesson before continuing to listen to this one. And the reason is that this lesson very much depends on the background knowledge from last week. So we'll be here when you get back. But just take a minute, go download last week's episode, and just make that your first introduction to the podcast here. Because you'll get a much better picture, I think, of what the podcast looks like. So I would certainly encourage you to do that. We talk a little bit in the intro about what kind of person we think would benefit from learning about this if you've, for example, ever been stumped by the fact that so many of today's religious scholars teach that the Bible is nothing more than sanitized myth. You know, this lesson series is for you. This is the kind of thing that you that you need to be learning about. Or if you're just somebody who's more interested in understanding the original historical kind of context and setting that the Bible was written in, then this lesson series certainly is helpful for you too. And so anyway, I talked a lot about that last week. We gave you an introduction to polemical theology. We began teaching you much more about what polemical theology actually is. This study is loosely based, at least, on a book that I just finished by Dr. John D. Currid, and the book is called Against the Gods. Dr. Currid is an Old Testament scholar, and he is probably the one most known for his writing specifically on the project of polemical theology, and his work here in Against the Gods certainly is excellent and not difficult either for 
a layperson to understand. So if you're worried about it being too technical or anything like that, go ahead and pick up the book. I mean, he goes into some detail in the footnotes and things like that. But the book is very, very accessible and will help you a lot. Now, I'm not going to go over everything that we talked about last time. We did talk about the correct use of polemical theology and how all that weighs in. But again, you're really going to need to listen to last week's lesson in order to understand what was going on there. But I am going to rehash for you as a refresher uh, the definition of polemical theology, according to Currit. So here it is. Let me give it to you. Quote, polemical theology is the use by biblical writers of the thought forms and stories that were common in the ancient Near Eastern culture while filling them with radically new meaning. The biblical authors take well-known expressions and motifs from the ancient Near Eastern milieu and apply them to the person and work of Yahweh and not to the other gods of the ancient world. Polemical theology rejects any encroachment of false gods into orthodox belief. There is an absolute intolerance of polytheism. Polemical theology is monotheistic to the very core. The primary purpose of polemical theology is to demonstrate emphatically and graphically the distinctions between the worldview of the Hebrews and the beliefs and practices of the rest of the ancient Near East. So you're already getting a sense for what this is and what kind of thing this is. Now, there is a right way and potentially some wrong ways to use polemical theology. And so we began dealing with the right ways last week, and indeed we finished up dealing with the right ways last week. So what we want to begin with now is a little bit of the possible misuse, the possible misuse of this of this idea that the biblical writers were satirizing and uh, taunting and diminishing the authority of the polytheistic cultures that were around them. There's a tendency in the scholarship to look at this from an angle of demythologicalization. Now, that's a big, big word, kind of a $20 word there, but demythologicalization. And so there are some Old Testament scholars. They are more in line, of course, with the liberal scholarship, but not all of them. Many who take this view, or at least a view that is that could be characterized similarly, they do exist within evangelicalism in some cases. So we want to be sure that we're not only dealing with people here who reject the Hebrew Bible as God's revelation, or at least who strongly feel for different reasons that the the large portion of what it teaches is merely the invention of man. We're dealing with some people who believe in biblical inspiration. But ultimately, in my view, they take their view a bit too far. And so that's what we want to talk about. We're going to first talk about the possible misuse of this line of thinking. And then we're going to talk about the warranted extent of this line of thinking before giving you some takeaways in my conclusion. Now, one thing I do kind of want to point out, I'm going to have to be careful with my words a little bit here because I want you to really take away from this. I want you to see that there's nothing wrong with polemical theology proper. In other words, as it has been defined, there is no contradiction with understanding the use of polemical theology in the Bible and with taking the Bible 
as authoritative with taking the Bible, even as somebody who, from the standpoint of things that we talk about quite a bit on this podcast, even as somebody who's approaching this from a young age creationist view, who's doing their best to read the Hebrew Bible with a historical, grammatical hermeneutic, whereby whenever possible, we're taking the most plain sense of the language, the natural meaning of words in their historical context. We want to remain faithful to all of those things. And it might help some of you, at least, to know that Currid, John Currid, the professor and Old Testament scholar who wrote the book, which we are dealing with, um, affirms all of those things. He believes that such a thing as a global flood uh, happened, as the Bible describes. He believes that creation took place in six, basically 24-hour days. Uh, there was a week of creation in which God accomplished his creation, and it was on the seventh day God rested. There is a linear progression through history, beginning at Genesis 1 and ending at the end of Revelation. I mean, he believes all of these things. Okay, so the person who wrote the book here is on our team. Now, I realize he's certainly on the broader team of Christianity, and we are going to be referencing people today who are on the broader team of Christianity with us. But I just want to make the clear distinction that there's no problem with polemical theology proper. It's just a matter of where where else can this be taken? Can it be taken to an unhealthy place or to a place that would be inconsistent with the rest of what God has revealed about himself and about actually his word in his revelation, in his word? So that's what we're going to be talking about. So let's look at the first possible misuse, which would be demythologicalization. Now, proponents who take this kind of view would say that rather than, as Currid would put it, myth becoming fact or fact becoming myth, which depends a lot on the the dating of certain circumstances. For example, Currid would say that in the case of the flood, fact became myth. But in the case of Moses and Aaron handling the serpent, myth, what had been written before, supposedly in the Egyptian mythological texts, myth had become fact. So this is the kind of view that Kurd would take. And in my view, this places the Bible in the proper context. Now, there are some who might claim that that's arbitrary, and I'm not going to spend time refuting that claim today. I do think that that's not arbitrary given certain background information, but I'm not going to spend time on that today because it's a bit of a sidetrack. But that's what Currid would want to say about this, that there are some times when myth became fact and other times when fact simply became myth. Well, the, the person who wants to demythologize who wants to say that what we're regarding as polemical theology isn't so much that it's based in the actual historicity of the events as they took place, but rather that it is borrowing from the events to show how Yahweh in those situations would be a Superior, how Yahweh would be the one true God, while the others are all false gods. So they would argue that the Bible contains many what they would call sanitized myths, Yahwehized per current. Okay, so rather than understanding these events as being grounded in history, they're hijacked really from these other cultures. Now it's for the polemical purpose. But on this view, we need not think that the events actually took place, at least not exactly in the way 
that the biblical writers have said. So uh, according to Currid, modern scholarship quite commonly sees the alleged biblical history as invention and propaganda that was written post-exile by authors with limited access to historical resources. So he's saying here that this is the view that many take. This is based on, of course, post-exilic dating. This is a denial of Mosaic authorship. And make no mistake, there are those who claim to be Christians. And I'm not saying that they're not Christians, but they claim to be Christians and they very, very much are in support of this kind of view. They deny Mosaic authorship. As a matter of fact, I talked to one gentleman who is a pretty close follower of Peter Enns. And if you know anything about the figures in this discussion, Enns would be pretty characteristic of, of the kind of thing I'm talking about here. And the gentleman who I was talking to really thinks there's a question as to whether or not Moses even existed. On his view, you could make the case that Moses did not exist. Well, you know, uh, my difficulty with that immediately is that Jesus said Moses existed. And what ends up happening here is you get a glimpse into the slippery slope that takes place. Now, this gentleman also happens to be a theistic evolutionist and has admitted to me personally that he feels that even though Jesus believed these things, he was wrong. Or, uh, as others have characterized it to me, that Jesus was merely accommodating himself to the culture in the same way that God allegedly accommodated himself to these cultures by allegedly teaching erroneous cosmologies and everything else in the Old Testament, or not teaching, that wouldn't be the proper term to use, but by using them, as, as one writer put it, as the vehicle to teach the theological cargo. So understand that this is a very common view. And again, on this view, the events of Genesis 1 through 11 are no more historical than similar stories that are found throughout the A&E. So this is, this is all kind of tied together when you start looking at this. And what it leads to is, in many cases, to be consistent, you're going to have to deny that Jesus was teaching accurately about many of the things that he taught. And this is problematic for me, and of course for Curran as well. Now, he calls into question in the book this, this notion that Israel has merely demythologized other A&E legends. And when I say A&E, of course I'm referring to the ancient Near East. Now, he feels that this view places too much emphasis on the symbiotic relationship between Israel and the ancient Near East while denying the Hebrews' unique theology and worldview. Now, I strongly believe that too. In fact, let me give you a quote from Kurib. He says, We must strongly question whether the position that the Bible demythologizes ancient Near Eastern legends is the only and proper way to understand the relationship between the two literatures. It seems to me that this position emphasizes the symbiotic relationship between Genesis 1 and other ancient Near Eastern cosmogonies to the detriment of the uniqueness and distinctiveness of the biblical record. It undervalues and undercuts the originality and exceptional nature of the Hebrew world and life view. Close quote. Now, I really like his thoughts there, and of course, the context that he was talking about was Genesis 1 from that particular quote, even though the majority of his book spends time in Exodus. Now, what he's getting at here is, and this is going to be talked about a lot more 
generally speaking, on the podcast this year in different avenues. But what he's getting at here is this idea that when Genesis 1 is being invoked by Moses to teach the Israelites about the one true creator God, there are some, yes, who, who, who just totally deny Mosaic authorship altogether, but there are some who affirm Mosaic authorship and still feel that Moses borrowed from these myths in order not to teach a historically accurate account of creation, but merely to show that it was God responsible for the acts of creation. And you can look and see, even in Genesis 1, it's there, the polemical elements, those elements that seem to deal a striking blow to some very particular things that the other cultures believed. Now, what Currid's quote is getting at is this idea that everything about the worldviews of the ancients was really had to do with their interaction with the gods and with magic and with forces of nature and things of uh, uh, things like that and on the polytheistic views that is on everybody's view other than Israel and you can really see this in John Oswald's book that we talked about a little bit last time also the bible among the myths he he very clearly stresses this point everything about these polytheistic cultures came from a worldview of continuity everything was related to the gods there's a question even as to whether or not the physical structure of the ancients whether that was even a consideration. In, in other words, anytime that you're drawing inferences as to what an ancient culture might have believed about cosmology or whatever, you have no choice but to draw that from some document that is talking about the gods, that is talking about the relationship of how the world, etc., was created by the gods, whether that be through procreation, whether that be through some divine battle, etc. That was the view. And what Currid is getting at here is Israel's view was radically other. Okay, in, in Oswald's terms, whereas everyone else had a view of continuity, Israel had a view of transcendence. That is, God is radically other than the world. He can perform acts in the world, but he is not the world. He is not merely an emanation of the forces of nature. He does not merely resemble these things. God is separate altogether. In one sense, you've got God, and then you've got everything else. You've got God and then things created by God, two separate ultimate things, to put it one way. And Currid feels strongly that this idea that we can just demythologize, that that's all that was going on, denies this distinctive nature. And so this is why he so confidently says that myth became or that fact, rather, in this case, became myth. Because if you just think about it, the Bible gives us, and we can't get all into this today, but the Bible gives us a clear, a clear representation of how this sort of thing can happen. So especially those of us who are aware of transcendental arguments and believe that the Bible is true by the impossibility of the contrary, are going to understand that God created everything, and if we're looking at our Bible the way that it appears, it seems to me that God revealed himself to the very first people. Okay, well, if that is the case, 
then there are traditions that carry down. And we, we come to the flood and we see that God had a special plan for Noah and for his family. And then after that, we see the dispersion at Babel and we see legends of floods and these creation myths and various things, flood myths and all of this all around the world. And it just seems so logical to me to think that there are distortions of the true story that have just emanated throughout the world as a result of the way the events actually happened. Now, to me, this explanation is warranted biblically. Not only is it warranted biblically, but it also features the uniqueness of Israel. In other words, it doesn't make what Moses wrote being dependent on some other erroneous cosmology or something like that. As a matter of fact, I think, as we've talked about before, I don't think the Bible explicitly teaches some kind of cosmology. I think there are certain things that you could interpret various ways. I think that, for example, I don't think the Bible teaches a solid dome for a firmament. I think that the Bible clearly equates the firmament with heaven as we talked about a few episodes ago, in such a way that we could understand it as being even things as close as where the birds fly or as high as the abode of God. So we have to understand that there's distinctions in there there that can be made, but the reality is to think that this was just some sort of demythologicalization, excuse me, does not do justice to the Hebrew world and life view of transcendence, of God being radically other than the world, and especially of the importance to Israel of history. If you look throughout the Hebrew Bible, accurate history, the remembrance of accurate history is a huge deal. Well, the reality is these polytheistic worldviews were not even remotely concerned with that. I mean, that's why, if you look, there is virtually no real history recorded. The only thing that even comes close to that is you've got some of these king lists and uh, the royal annals and things like that to kind of talk about the victories, etc., that some of these nations won against other nations. And even then, you're only getting the positive spin on the story. But the Bible gives you the whole picture all throughout. And there's this constant importance in the recording of accurate history. And why does that matter? Because God has acted in history. And so we see that just about anything other than realizing the preeminence of the revelation as given by God just completely destroys our ability to appreciate the uniqueness of Israel among her neighbors. So the second possible misuse, coming right off the heels of demythologicalization, is excessive accommodation. Excessive accommodation. Now this was not really dealt with by Kurid that much in in the book, so I don't want to spend forever on it here. But we need to make a distinction, and I talked about this a little bit in uh, a few moments ago when I was talking about this idea that Jesus had to accommodate himself to those who were around him, and that God accommodated himself by teaching, again, as one writer put it, theological cargo via what we would know today as erroneous vehicles like certain cosmologies held by the ancients that we know are false today. That's what some would want to argue. Now, let's be clear about one thing. There is a legitimate distinction, a legitimate project to accommodation. And the simplest way to characterize this is God tells us very clearly, my thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher. My ways are higher than your ways. And so there is a sense in which 
God has to accommodate the mind of man because it is not the mind of God. So God, a lot of times in the Bible, uses word pictures and analogies and things like that in order to explain concepts to us that we would understand, at least in a limited sense. So there has always been a legitimate way of understanding accommodation. But what I'm talking about goes too far, in my view. In other words, this is the kind of thing that I was just talking about. Some of these similarities, for example, that we see in the Bible where we're looking at these polemical incidents would also lead people to think that that Moses thought the earth was, was flat. Or that there were literal windows in heaven, etc. And again, that some believe even Jesus affirmed inaccuracies in the Hebrew Bible in order to accommodate. And I just think that this goes too far. There are numerous reasons why I think this. We cannot go into them today why some of these things might be considered to go too far. But just know that this is not the kind of thing we're talking about here. We, we need to understand the difference between legitimate accommodation and excessive accommodation. And I think that a, a possible misuse, in other words, of polemical theology is to think that it was so important that erroneous facts about the reality of the world were used to deliver the message. I think that's taking it too far, especially when it happens to lead even to the point where we have to deny things that Jesus thought and said about the nature of reality. That just goes too far for me. I'm not willing to go there. And again, we'll probably talk a lot more along these themes throughout this year. And then finally, we have unjustified assumptions or assertions. And again, often associated with those who use the polemical theology angle. And here might be just a few of these. We have this assumption of a pre-scientific worldview. Now, this one requires a little bit of cashing out simply because there is a sense in which they were pre-scientific. But I, I think that the term is not well enough defined. For example, when we look to the ancients, I very, very highly doubt that the ancient Israelite layperson was very concerned at all about the physical structure of the cosmos. As a matter of fact, I would say that the majority of people in the ancient Near East were likely very unconcerned with the physical nature of the cosmos. And again, as I mentioned, it's evident to see from the other myths that when they were looking at the sky, they weren't even considering, in most cases, they weren't even considering it as a physical structure. It was all in how it pertained to the gods. It is not clear, listen to me, it is not clear from any piece of evidence that we have from the ancient Near East whether they thought that they were describing or even attempting to figure out the physical nature of the world around them in that sense. I'm sure there was an outlier or two, but it certainly is not reflected in their writing. Everything, everything is as it pertains to the polytheistic gods, either through procreation or through struggle, when they talk about pillars of the earth, for example, anytime they use that phrase, they are talking about gods that are undergirding and holding up these pillars. It has nothing to do with physical structure of the cosmos 
at all, as far as we can tell. And you, you, you could read various modern interpretations of all of the same material, and you would find what I'm talking about. It is very, very hard to see. In fact, of six or seven possible interpretations of some of these ancient writings and ancient texts, it is very hard to see how any more than even one of them could be concerned with the physical cosmos. And if these are indeed pre-scientific cultures, then there is just no reason to think that they are interested in talking about the physical structure of the cosmos this early. Now, that leads to the question of whether the Bible is concerned with such things. Now, again, this is another big discussion. I don't think at any point the Bible aims to teach a certain cosmology or structure of the world. However, there are things in the Bible. The Bible does deal with the nature of reality. Okay, And there are things in the Bible that today we look at and it sure seems like it's talking about a physical structure similar to what we can look at with our own eyes. And we have to wonder, on the Israelite worldview of transcendence, how they viewed this. Because when the Bible speaks to what we might see as a physical structure, it's clear on a transcendent worldview that it is not talking about some kind of emanation of the gods or the procreation of the gods or the struggles of the gods. So you have to think it's talking about reality. And when you look at it from that view, there is just no suggestion in the text that the Bible is describing some sort of ancient cosmology. There's, I just do not see it. It seems to me that if we're dealing, as they claim, as, as the critics who do take this view claim, that what we're dealing with is a pre-scientific worldview, then it seems to me that the writers are recording from a perspective of phenomenology. Now, I know that many charge us today of thinking that only because of what we know about the structure of the cosmos. But that doesn't seem to be the case at all, because we very clearly know about the nature of the cosmos today, and yet we still talk about the sun rising and the sun setting. When you look to the sky, that's what is happening. And there's just not enough that you can get from these other cultures around the Israelites to think that they even considered themselves to be describing something physical when they spoke to these similar matters. And I see no reason to think that the Bible is using an erroneous cosmology in the case that we're in the example we're discussing. I see no reason to think that the Bible is discussing an erroneous cosmology in order to teach a theological truth. It seems to me that indeed a pre-scientific in that sense culture would write from a, a perspective of just writing what they see. Okay, so we have that. Now, and that, on the other hand, to that, I think there is a case that could be made for some of these cultures being more sophisticated than we give them credit for. And I will just revert you back to lesson 30, actually, of this podcast. It was the Creation Academy back then. But uh, still, we talked about in lesson 30, we were going through a book. And the lesson title is, Who Was Ancient Man? Who Was Ancient Man? So I want you to look at that. And I think you will see that there was definitely some concern for science and technology among those different cultures back in that day. But to what extent is the question? How far can you take that? So I think there is a balance between thinking that these worldviews were pre-scientific 
in terms of what they were actually concerned with when they looked at the world around them. So you can go there and kind of use the statements I've made here and the statements I make in that lesson and kind of make a judgment for yourself. I would highly encourage you to pick up the book that we went through that that that, uh, that lesson was based on a chapter in the book, Searching for Adam in uh, Genesis. I think the subtitle was Genesis and the Truth About Man's Origin, something like that. The series that we did was on the biblical origin of humanity. And you can go back and check that out. Lesson number 30. So another possible unjustified assumption or assertion is the idea that literary elegance precludes factual history. Literary elegance precludes factual history. I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but the point that I want to bring out is that some would say that, for instance, with respect to like Genesis 1, for example, there is a excellent literary elegance to the text. There is a immaculate literary construction. And what we don't want to do is deny that that we want to, number one, affirm that literary construction and the elegance of it. But we don't want to lead that to the denial of the history. Now, Many who make the claim say, indeed, that it does not deny factual history, but there's never any fleshing out as to what we can actually take away meaningfully from that, aside from the fact, oh, that God created. Okay, now, it seems to me that there is much more to the text of Genesis 1, for example, than just God created. There is more that is being taught there. There are very, very specific details, things that are going on there in the text that lead us to think that we are to take it at a much more face value reading than many give it credit for. So let's not think that literary elegance precludes factual history. Let's not think that literary elegance precludes narrative writing, prose writing. Let's not think that. Okay, now, the final unjustified assumption or assertion would be functional versus material emphasis. Functional versus material emphasis. Now, back in the day, there are some who would argue these cultures not only were pre-scientific, but they were concerned not with the material of how, you know, what something was, was, was made of or the construction of something versus the function of something. Now, something I do want to point out here is it seems to me that a lot of the same people who want to say that the only concern was function, that there was no concern with material, also say that it was this faulty material cosmology in view that the Bible has robbed. Now, to me, I just see an inherent contradiction there. However, I don't think we can rationally affirm that at least with respect to the Hebrews. Now, I'm, I'm not immersed in A&E studies. I don't know about some of these other cultures. But folks like John Walton, for example, want to argue that the Hebrews, being among their neighbors, also saw things in terms of function and not in terms of material. Now, this just seems like a really dubious kind of observation. It seems to me that you don't have a function without the material. And indeed, as I read, for example, Genesis 1, I do see tons of material. Yes, I see function, and I think there's good reason for, for why uh, we also see function. But I see material as well. I see the material of the animals and plants and the vegetation and indeed the luminaries, etc. that were created. I see function, but I see the material which produces that function. And, you know, I won't 
you know, get all into this hobby horse today, but I mean, Walton has been thoroughly criticized on this particular aspect of his view by many of his peers because they just simply don't see it either. And so while I may not be an Old Testament scholar, uh, we definitely see a, a ton of other Old Testament scholars who who take issue with this idea of this this hard bifurcation between the functional and the material. And advocates for this view would, uh, would, would call this functional ontology. That is, they were concerned not with the material, but with the function. And I'm just not sure with reading the Bible anyway. I can't really speak for these other cultures. I, I would, I even would doubt it with respect to these other cultures, but I definitely don't see it in the Bible. And as a matter of fact, this is another place where I think a sharp distinction can be drawn. For if the other ancient material or the other ancient cultures were indeed consumed with the idea of function versus material. And we do see evidence in the Hebrew Bible where that would not be the case. Then this seems to me to strengthen the contention that Israel did not borrow erroneous um, ideas about the natural world of the ancients in order to teach theological truths. It could well be the case that the Hebrews were concerned. Their, on their worldview, they did have concern with uh, material things and not merely function, even though these other cultures may have. And if the other cultures were only focused on function and not material, then it seems to me that they weren't concerned at all about the physical structure of the cosmos or the physical structure of the earth or whatever. They were merely concerned about its function as some sort of relation to the gods and not the material ontology of it, whereas the Bible is speaking to the material ontology of it, and it certainly does not seem to deal with erroneous views. You, 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 could, put, you could draw different passages, and you could try to put something together that looks like an erroneous cosmology, but you could just as well do that with a modern cosmology. So I do not think that the Bible is intending to teach a cosmology, but I do think it says true things about the nature of reality, including God's natural world around us. And so you know, on that note, I do think it's important to make that distinction between what the Hebrews actually believed and what other A&E cultures may have. So for that, to get a little help with that, you could check out lesson number 22. And we deal there uh, with the topic, does John Walton get Genesis right? Does John Walton get Genesis right? And we talk a little bit about this functional versus material idea there. And that is indeed another instance where we go through the Searching for Adam book. It's dealing with another chapter of the Searching for Adam book there. Okay, well, you know, I, I didn't plan to do this once again. Apparently, I need to plan a little better. But it turns out that we are we are getting uh, pretty close to time. I mean, I, I try not to go much more than an hour, and we've gone 48 minutes. And I still have a lot more to talk about when it comes to the relationship between the ancient Near East and the Bible with the respect to polemical theology. So we dealt this week with the warranted extent. And so next week we will deal with, or excuse me, we dealt this week with the possible misuse and took some time on that. And next week we will come back and deal with the warranted extent. How far can we really take this with warrant? How far can we take this? And then we'll give some conclusions. Don't forget, please, to download the lesson handout that goes along with last week's lesson and this week's lesson and at the end it looks like next week's lesson as well and that is the uh, uh, the handout is the number one textual reason to think Jesus thought Genesis was history so remember I mentioned a little bit about this accommodation idea with respect to Jesus and so I really want you to consider that I think Jesus clearly thought Genesis was history, and I give you some reasons why, uh, indeed the number one reason why, in the lesson handout from last week and this week, the number one textual reason to think that Jesus thought Genesis was history. And so you can download that by going to steveshram.com slash 076 download. That is steveshram.com slash 076 
6. Download. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you for your revealed written word to us. Father, we thank you that you knew that we would have many of these struggles today as we try desperately to fight for your truth in a world who wants to deny it. And Lord, to be fair, a a world of Christians who really just want to understand your word better and feel that they are honoring you in their endeavor, even if we disagree with them. Father, I pray you would help us to be the kind of Christians who can speak with respect to them in our disagreement and help to give rational reasons why we think the disagreement is warranted. Father, I pray that you would always help us to be edifying in our language and our discussions, both with those who believe and those who don't. Thank you, Father, for your marvelous gift of salvation that you offered to this, our lost and dying world. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, everyone. Hey, don't forget to download that lesson handout, the number one textual reason to think that Jesus thought Genesis was history. And next week, we are going to, Lord willing, finalize our discussion that we have had on polemical theology, this primer on polemical theology. And again, we've been going through a summary, basically, of John Curran's book, Against the Gods. I highly encourage you to pick that book up. It's an excellent read. We'll return next week to talk about some of the final aspects of that and wrap up this little mini-series. All right, God bless you. I hope you have a 